Hi there. Welcome to another episode of Teams at Work, a podcast for the new generation of leaders. Every episode, we talk to an inspiring guest who is running a high-performance team or company to learn about their journey and get actionable tips along the way. I'm your host. My name is Daria Gutnick, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Bunch. My team and I are on a mission to help all managers become great leaders. We're building an AI leadership coach to help you become a world-class leader with as little time invested as two minutes a day. Before we kick it off today, don't forget to subscribe as we're always having super interesting guests come and join us. Hi, I'm Daria from Bunch, and I'm here today with one of my co-founders, Anthony. Hi, Anthony. Hey, Daria. Super good to have you here as always. And of course, we have a super exciting guest. James Strang, who's here with us today, is currently the head of engineering at Snipe Esports. However, he's had a hugely long career starting from the late 90s, actually, going from being an engineer towards being senior and lead engineer all the way up to product owner, CTO, and currently head of engineering. So super excited to have you here with us, James, and here a few of the stories and many of the learnings. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. A real honor. I have so many questions, so I'm going to jump right into it um, to not keep anyone waiting, of course. So you're currently the head of engineering at Snipe. What does it actually mean or what does it look like um, to be head of engineering? Uh, that's a good question. And I'm actually in a bit of a transition period right now. Uh, so I am currently head of engineering at Snipe, and I'm mainly going to be talking about that role, but I'm actually starting a new job uh, very soon. Uh, so I'm going to be the, the VP of engineering of a fintech bank called Griffin, uh, which is building a, a banking as a service platform. So I'm really excited about that new challenge, um, but we're mainly going to be talking about what I have been doing. So uh, I can tell you a bit about Snipe uh, and what I've been doing there. Uh, so Snipe, it's uh, currently a 40-person company. Um, it's uh, still a startup, and it's in the, the eSports area. So we build uh, a platform for watching eSports. And the, the idea with the product is to give a better experience for the viewers than you can get on Twitch or YouTube. Uh, and the secret source for that is to connect to the game servers and, and have a real-time understanding of what's happening uh, in the game and then present that via the UX and UI of the product. Uh, and my journey there, so I've been there for two years and uh, my role and my journey has has been to start with kind of a transformation. It's, it was about taking uh, a small and, and scrappy startup team and uh, using my experience to, to help them grow and develop and, and progress in, in their processes and, and culture so that we could start to become a really scalable uh, startup company. Uh, and so that's how, what how I. How big was the team when you actually joined them? Yeah, so uh, right now, uh, or currently, it's like a 15 person engineering team, uh, including designers and, and testers and developers. Mm -hmm. And it, I think we were five when I joined. So we've tripled in size. Um, so you asked about the sort of the day to day. Mm -hmm. uh, as always in startups, I'm sure you guys will recognize this, but it's, it's a lot about switching hats. Uh, there, there's so much to do, and you don't always have all of the, the capacity that you need to do that. But um, the head of engineering role itself is, is very much been about line management and coaching. Uh, so developing the people and the teams. Uh, it's been about shaping and guiding the different processes that we use uh, around the product, around the development, around design, uh, around testing. And then because of the, the growth, it's been a, a lot about putting on the recruitment hat 
and the HR hat and onboarding and contracts and all of that part, uh, but also supporting uh, the, lead, the rest of the leadership team with investments, uh, sales, business development support, and then doing supplier relations and all, all the nitty bitty things that tend to fall on you as, as a leader. Yeah, so it's actually much broader than one may think if uh, you hear kind of the title and the role, head of engineering, right? I, uh, it makes perfect sense. I, I, I'm pretty sure um, some people probably might be surprised, like how wide your activity and your impact spans, and especially like working in a smaller or in a growing company where, of course, you have to wear multiple hats. And if you have the title head of anything, it basically means you kind of have at least two to three jobs on top of your kind of normal day to day where you support. Um, That's been my experience with startups. Absolutely. My, my guess is in a bigger organization or a more well-established company, it, you might have slightly more of a narrow focus on, mm -hmm. on just some parts of what I mentioned. But in a startup, it tends to, like you say, go broader. And I think maybe as a follow-up on this, thank you so much for sharing this with us. Um, what do you think makes leading engineering teams special or is it at all special than, and different than leading, let's say, product teams or marketing teams or sales teams? And what do you think makes a great engineering leader in comparison to kind of the other disciplines? I guess the initial problem is that I, I haven't really led any other kind of team. So it's hard for me to directly compare, I guess, if you have someone on that has led another team and an engineering team, they, they might be able to give a more accurate perspective but from my limited experience there I, I, I would guess that there are more similarities than differences because leading is leading right but um, maybe one main difference that pops into my mind is with engineering teams just how much your role is about protecting them from interruption uh, with the focus on keeping them as effective as possible uh, I guess you guys know this because you work with developers too but there's something a little bit special and you I don't know if it's unique but it's definitely rare in my experience about just how deep and concentrated uh, the actual art and science of, of building software is. Uh, when, when you're programming or debugging or refactoring, it's such a deep work. You know, you're building these mental images in your mind, a model of quite complex machinery that you can't actually see or touch. You're just imagining these, you know, concepts, these abstract ideas, and you're kind of connecting them together And, and you're piecing it together almost like a jigsaw and figuring out, well, what do we need to change and what will happen if I do this or that? And, and what I've found is if you interrupt that work when somebody's in the middle of that journey, it can set them all the way back to the beginning. Um, so that, that, that's my gut instinct is to say that protecting the teams is really important when you have engineering teams. Yeah, from my own experience, I definitely can confirm that's probably one of the toughest challenges for specifically, I think, um, teams in our stage of business. We're currently 10 people we're growing now, but it's, I think, where you're like so exposed to all else going on in the business. I think being an engineer in that environment, and I'm sure this holds on for like until you're 20, 30 people. Um, it's good and bad in the same way, right? But I can definitely relate uh, to, to that challenge. And maybe kind of to double down on that second question, if that's the main challenge, and if this is kind of the big enabling function that you have as an engineering leader, what do you think does a very effective and impactful engineering leader need to do and how do they need to behave so that they actually can become a great leader for their team? Yeah, I, I, I think that's good. But it, if we base our assumption on that there's a lot of overlap, maybe I could start by talking about where I think there's similarities. Like what, what, what do I think just makes a great leader? And then we can maybe zoom in on the bits where I think it's specifically for an engineering leader. Does that sound okay? Yeah, absolutely. Of course. Great. 
So there's a lot, of course, involved in, in good leadership, and I don't think I, I can cover everything. Um, but the things that sort of pop into mind uh, that I find important are uh, a lot of focus on clear and transparent communication. Uh, I, I find that really helps with, with team alignment, with helping people collaborate together, with overall effectiveness, uh, but, but perhaps even, or at least equally as importantly, I, I find being clear and transparent helps with psychological safety in the team. I think if people feel like they're flying blind, it's just uncomfortable. So the more you can share and the more you can be open, I, I, I find that really helps the team stay motivated and feel involved. I also think it's really important to inspire the team. I think good leaders inspire. I think what I try and do is something something you could call painting the purpose. Uh, and essentially that's always explaining why are we doing something. Simon Sinek talks a lot about starting with why. And I think it's it's a really smart way to think about leadership. Um, so behind any piece of work that we're doing, I always try and align everybody and motivate them. And I think good leaders generally do that. Uh, I think involving the whole team in planning and prioritization is key. Uh, that That's part of the, the motivation aspect. It's about capturing the best ideas, because if you involve everyone, you, you have a wider net for getting good ideas. Uh, but it also increases people's feeling of ownership and, and the impact that they can make on their day-to-day -day work, which I think really helps with motivation. I think uh, good leaders, they're good at building trust and respect amongst the team. I think you do that by showing your competence. You, you do the transparency, the thing I was talking about before. You show humility. Uh, you're vulnerable with people. You open up. Uh, and I think, I think that's important because to be a good leader, you need, you need to sort of set the standard. You need to have people to say, oh, I want to follow that person. Uh, so I think that's really important. Uh, something else that comes to mind is about setting problems for teams to solve rather than giving them ready-baked solutions. Engineers in particular really don't like to be, I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but they don't like to be given solutions. They, they like to solve problems themselves, and that's kind of what they're really, really good at. So it's about making the best use of everybody's skill sets. Uh, and then I think coaching is really important with leadership. Uh, part of it is about how can we as a team be the most effective unit, the most effective like sports team, if you like. And so much of that is taking that time to get to know people, uh, to give them feedback, both positive and negative or constructive, uh, to build both their confidence and their skill set, and, and to really help them sort of push outside of their comfort zones, uh, piece by piece sort of growing, because then the whole, as each person grows, the, the whole team grows. Uh, effective processes, I think, are important. I think understanding all the processes and helping shape and guide them is super important as, as a leader. And then something that I think gets really toxic in a lot of uh, companies and cultures is, is meetings. I think we do too many. I think we don't have a clear focus with them. So I think good leaders set a good example with, with their meetings. So they make sure to respect everybody's time, uh, to state the expected outcome before you start, and to really focus on making decisions. James, I'd love to follow up on one thing there. I mean, I would yeah. love to follow up on them all, but this is like coming from Anthony as a person. How do you inspire engineers? And I, I don't say that in the sense that like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm like, you know, I've failed at it tons of times. I mean, maybe I have, of course, but you, you did mention that engineers love to solve problems and not solutions. And I think for a lot of people out there, I think it's actually a, quite a common question. And, and I think the Hollywood version is, of course, the, the Braveheart version, which is, which is not always the way you inspire, right? So I'm curious as, as to, to, to tap into your leadership 
uh, engineering leadership experience. What is the best way you found to really truly inspire a group of um, a group of makers? What is what are you, what, are, what what has worked for you? I think you need to be um, consistent, and you need to be the role model for whatever that culture it is that you're trying to build. Um, so things like I, I try to be very quick to admit if I've made mistakes. Um, I try to always turn up on time for everything and especially hold like one-to-ones as like holy times in the calendar that I, I, I never forget or I never miss. Uh, I try to always be prepared uh, for meetings or for design sessions or for planning um, so that the people see I'm putting that effort in, right? And, and I think it goes back to what I was saying right at the beginning about competence. I think the more you can show your competence and your sort of passion for, for making this work. I think the easier it is for other people to respond and, and I, zooming in because I said I was zooming on, on where I think it's different for great engineering leaders. And, and the other things I talked about were more general, but may, and maybe this is controversial, but I actually think to be a great engineering leader, you should be a great engineer yourself. Uh, and why I think that is, I talked about trust and respect. And I think if you really understand something at a deep level, and especially if that thing that you're doing is really hard to do, to lead other people and not know how to do that yourself is really tough. I'm not saying that you can't do it. And I'm not saying there aren't some really good engineering leaders out there who haven't had that background. But I just think it's a, it's, you make it much harder for yourself because sometimes it's about decision-making, right? And you have to, if there's, you're trying to get the team to come to some kind of a joint agreement, but sometimes you can't, and somebody has to make that decision and, and that should be the leader. But to make the right decision, you really have to have a deep and broad knowledge of, of what it is you're working on. So, uh, and the other thing is about hiring. If I'm gonna be responsible for hiring great engineers, how can I do that if I don't know what that looks like? And it's much harder to know what that looks like if, if I haven't sort of been there myself, if that makes sense. 100%, 100%. And I think that was that was the lead up to this next question, which I think is, is of course of personal interest for me, but I also think our, our, our listeners and audience, you, you already noted like the deep need specifically. And I think there is an extra, extraordinary need for engineers to have focus. And I think it makes their leadership and management journey extra, extra interesting um, because that transition from being an individual contributor on the engineering side to being a manager of engineers, I think in a lot of ways, and I know working with Charles, our CTO, I've learned a lot from him. A lot of ways that separation is very different than, you know, like a sales leader or an, a, 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 a salesperson going to a sales leader position. For engineers, it, it really is. There's this massive people difference. And correct me if I'm wrong on all this, but I would love to zoom into sort of your transition um, and your decision point to move from individual contributor to lead engineer to where you are now. And the golden question, did you ever expect, like, what did you know you wanted to be an engineering leader in the early days? Did you expect to be in management, quote unquote? I can start with the last question so I don't forget it this time. I would say no. Uh, when, when I started way back when, no, I, I don't think so. In, in fact, maybe I can start this by, by telling you guys perhaps the most embarrassing work-related memory that, that I have. Uh, I don't think I've ever told anybody this, but uh, so why I'm saying it on a podcast, I don't know. But but cast your mind's eye back to, to the year 1999. So Fight Club, American Beauty, Office Space, The Matrix. So those were all in the cinema. So it was a good year for movies. And I was 19. Uh, so I was young and fresh-faced. And I just got my first job as a software engineer. Uh, it was, it's not really important to the story, but it was year three of my degree. 
So I did a sandwich degree. I don't know if you guys have those there, but it's where you do a four, a three-year degree over four years and you do one-year placement in a company. And it's really good because I feel like I learned more in that year on, on the job than I did in the three years doing the theoretical study about software development. But that's that's not the embarrassing story. So let's get back to that. So it was for this uh, large international telecommunications company, a Canadian one that doesn't exist anymore. But uh, yeah, and uh, I was in the R&D department. And I remember the first day when I got there and like my team lead sat a few, there were two new people uh, down in a room and he was drawing things on the whiteboard about their architecture, showing us some code. And I just remember feeling completely out of my depth. Like I, I was thinking, what, how did they hire me? Why, why am I here? You know, I felt extreme amounts of like imposter syndrome. Um, but it was kind of okay. And I was just thinking, hopefully I'm going to be able to learn this and pick it up, but it didn't feel like it. Um, and then they sent us on this like two day induction course. It was like a conference, like offsite. And it was all the new people that had joined this big company. Um, and, and there was a, a session and it was about communication. Um, I can't remember exactly what the topic was, but I think they asked us to basically stand up, introduce ourselves and say something about what we'd learned, learned about the company where they'd given us some like information and I was maybe one of the younger ones in the room because most people there were like, it was their first or second job. So I think they were like twenties or mid twenties, but everyone stood up and they were so good at communicating. And, and I was just think, getting more and more nervous as it was coming around to me. And, and I stood up and I just totally blanked. Like I, I could barely even remember who, what my name was. Right. I was just, and I think I mumbled something, but I, I don't know what I said. And I sat down and I, I went bright red and I, it was just, I wanted the earth to like swallow me whole. And the reason I'm telling that is because I, I think I learned a couple of things uh, during that, that horrible situation. The, the first one was, if I was going to stand up and present things to people at work, then I needed to be a bit more prepared. Uh, and I realized that I couldn't just focus on programming skills, right? That, that's what I thought I needed to get good at to, to work well. Um, but obviously, when you work, it's not just sitting at the computer. Even as a developer, you have to communicate. Uh, so I realized that. And then I also realized that that was like the most embarrassing thing that maybe happened to me up until that point. But other people in the conference didn't seem to notice that much. Like afterwards, you know, I was talking with people and nobody mentioned it. And I, my guess is if you ask them today, they wouldn't remember that. They might remember that they made a mistake. Or So I also learned that other people think more about themselves than, than, than they do about you. So you don't need to worry too much if you screw up a little bit. Um, and basically those hard won insights that I got that day sort of led me to focus a bit more on broadening my skill set. Uh, I don't think I ever thought even at that point that I would become like a leader or uh, run teams or anything, but at least it got me thinking that that's, that would be interesting uh, and possible. Um, and then kind of my journey continued, maybe if I skip ahead a little bit. And my first job after uni, I got super lucky uh, joining a startup, had this uh, like tech lead who was brilliant. And he really sort of took me under his wing. And I just essentially tried to copy what he did. He was like a mentor, essentially. Um, so I soaked up as much knowledge as I could. And uh, both on communication, but also on programming and software development on how to be kind to people, like he was an awesome guy. And then it, it was a couple of years after that, that I kind of got thrust into leadership without sort of expecting it to happen. I, I, uh, I joined NASDAQ, uh, 
Nasdaq OMX. It was the, the Swedish stock exchange. And uh, what happened was I joined a team with like consultants and they had a policy where consultants couldn't lead a team. So as the only full-time employee, I was the, automatically made the team lead, even though I was by far the least experienced. And, and that was really interesting because... Of course, you're thinking, I'm, I'm not going to be able to cope with this. These guys know way more. But I kind of already got the insight that if you, a lot of people that seemed confident, essentially what they were doing were faking it until they made it kind of thing. You know, you've heard that phrase before. Um, so I tried doing that. And then what happened was, is that I'd already learned quite a lot about, uh, do you guys know, have you heard of that extreme programming? XP, it's called. Yeah, That's exactly. ringing a bell, but it's probably good to uh, tell us a bit more, I think. <laughs> yeah, so XP, we used it at the, the, the job I had before this one at NASDAQ OMX. And essentially, it's a way of working together and pairing. And there's some really good ideas there. And I'd read about Scrum. It was This was way back when, when Scrum and Agile was just sort of starting to take off. And, and I wanted to try Scrum. So I sort of convinced my manager that here's the thing, why don't we try it in the team? If it doesn't work, we'll switch back. You know, let's see how it goes. And, and he bought that. And then what happened was we put up the board, we started doing it. it. It started working really well for us, even though, you know, I was a beginner, we were making lots of mistakes. I was not doing it really, really well, but, you know, I was trying. And but what happened was that the whole project sort of started paying attention to what we were doing. It was weird, right? We were doing something different. And team by team, they started doing Scrum. And that was a really interesting and eye-opening moment for me that you can make an impact even on a big company, even as a young person, you can make change happen, essentially. Um, and then after that, my transition to product owner happened because I started realizing the importance of effective prioritization, planning, uh, how important it is to understand about user needs uh, and not driving things just from the engineering side. So I fell in love with the whole UX UI design process, started soaking up everything I could about lean UX, uh, about user testing, psychology, cognitive biases, all of those things. Um, and then from there, because I'd kind of done the developer, I'd done a bit on the agile leadership, done a bit on the product leadership. Then the next steps to like CTO and, and head of engineering became... Uh, more natural, I would say. So that's kind of my journey. Thanks so much. That's that's a, an amazing journey, and I, I do think it, it highlights those moments where it was really it was a really good uh, walk along to, to see the moments where it really where the, the the lessons sort of embedded themselves. So I mean, you know, to wrap that journey part up, uh, James. Today, what is still the hardest part of your job? What are the parts that you're still struggling with and just are 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 just really difficult to wrangle? Yeah, good question. I would say coaching. Um, I, I try to make coaching a big part of what I do. Uh, and I feel like I've gotten better at it over the years because I've been doing it for a while now. But the one thing I've noticed, and I'd love to talk to you guys about how you deal with this, is when you build that trust with someone, when you have that relationship that you're building, sometimes the coaching sessions can get quite personal. Um, and one of the things I've struggled with is to know where to draw the line uh, between keeping a professional or sort of being uh, almost like a psychologist um, for them. And that's not always obvious to me because, of course, you know, you're working with human beings. They have lives outside of work. Things are going on in their lives. 
uh, things that can impact their work. And when we trust each other, we talk about those kind of things and, and we share things with each other. Um, but I wonder if sometimes I overstep the mark there and, and maybe talk um, about things that I'm, I'm not trained to talk about. But, uh, but uh, is that something either of you to have noticed? And I, and I know, Daria, you have a background in that. So I'd love to hear your input on that. This is so interesting um, because I oftentimes feel myself on the other end of the spectrum. So um, in many ways, when I, um, and, and uh, as you know, Charles, our third co-founder and our CTO, um, I can refer to him. I think when, when I sometimes compare how we like approach team challenges, like I always feel we kind of come at it from two different angles. I think um, Charles is like the problem solver and kind of looks at the whole space, zooms out, like maps out the options and kind of like the problem and the complication and like what options to, sol to solve it we have and things. And especially when it comes to people, I tend to kind of um, more uh, use the relationship grid and try to approach it from like a uh, kind of like social dynamics perspective almost or try to understand like where do we have current like the best trust uh, structures and and where how can we approach a conversation from like a very open and transparent point of view and at the same time in like a very safe uh, way and so on so it's really kind of like a different um there's a, a bit of tension there because i think it's like the factual matter of fact kind of like let's speak about it this is the thing how can we uh solve it versus like where are you at what's going on what's your context what are you struggling with and then kind of trying to like almost i don't want to say smuggle but kind of like try to fit in the problems that are currently also flying around in the team context and then look at mm -hmm. it together kind of thing so it's like this massaging versus just like this is what it is let's lay it out and i never know which one is actually better and i i noticed though that there is this like stylistic difference and it probably has to do with the fact that um charles is an engineer and looks at like problems in a slightly different way and like having the psychology degree but also the coaching background kind of pushes me almost like to um pull the the, the yeah the kind of more relationship uh toolkit almost i think the disadvantage of this is to kind of get closer to the question that you asked which is how much of that is actually allowed how much of that is okay and it's kind of it, it does feel like it's a double-edged sword sometimes for me as well because i i oftentimes um, I notice that I lead with closeness, like I can create collaborative intimacy relatively quickly. I also sometimes fuck it up, of course, and like <laughs> it falls apart, I have to rebuild it. Mm -hmm. But in general, this is my kind of like tool of choice almost intuitively. And I think the disadvantage of it sometimes is that when people actually um, come to close and then you can't pay as much attention and it, it creates this feeling of like we've been working together so closely and then you like disappeared on me and then you came back and it's unpredictable and I have difficulties building trust with you and so on and so on. So there's like a lot of actual complications, I think, from this, um, especially this angle that you just mentioned, kind of where you create closeness, you create trust, you are interested in those people's lives, but then you are still limited, of course, first of all, by um, and, and that's, an, a, that's a good thing, like by the professionalism of the relationship, but also mm -hmm. sometimes just by like, physical matter of factual kind of things like you can't have six one-on-ones with the same person in a week and sometimes maybe that's what they need uh, but you also have other direct reports so I, I find it also very tricky to be honest and I don't think there is um, one answer to this but my feeling is that 
people have different styles. And I don't think it actually matters so much whether you are doing like the right thing, but it more matters. Are you doing the right thing for how you roll, like what your style is and what, how people know you also, and like how Mm -hmm. people would expect it from you, what feels like authentic and, and trustworthy. And at the same time, I think consistency is super key, which for me is a big struggle currently, um, where if you are offering that type of like um, quality in the relationship where you actually can ask questions beyond work and when you, when you have to trust with the person that they can answer them and they actually get value out of it and you kind of can mentor them, like not only from a perspective of like at work, but also more um, larger scale decisions, et cetera, then it's something that they probably would want to keep um, and kind of half accessible. And I feel almost that's maybe the, um, the question, like how much of that is available and for how many people and like, how do you balance this as, as well with your own needs as a person? Because sometimes we also forget like behind all the management and all the leadership, there's just simply a person that also has needs and families and friends. And there's Absolutely. like a lot of balancing going on. So I, I've personally found that the challenge is more there but I don't think there is any like um, beyond the like, and, and this is probably the part like there is like professional boundaries, of course, but I don't think the professional boundaries necessarily dictate uh, whether you can or cannot help someone resolve personal problems if they like invite you in and if it makes sense. I think that's very um, honorable. But the question is, can you like keep that up? And is it also useful for them? Like maybe it's, it's something that feels like you are helping them in that moment, but in the end isn't like a tool to help them grow rather than like solving their problems for them as well. This is also mm. a trap that I fall into very often where like I try I, to... I fall into that one all the time. Yeah. I, I thought it was my engineering background that, you know, there's a part of my brain that gets tickled when I have a solution to something. Um, but like you say, you, you summarized it perfectly. I, I found it's better to give them the tools to solve it rather than jumping in and solving it myself. But sometimes it's hard to avoid the temptation Yeah, exactly. And I think that is actually to bring it back to coaching, right? And to like psychology. And despite of the kind of psychological, let's say, taste of coaching, which also, I mean, like there is, there's overlaps, but it's not same, same, right? Like the, in psychology, you go a lot into like therapy and things like that. But even in the therapy realm where like things are really personal and like really sensitive, um, the number one rule as a therapist is like you help, you help your patient to help themselves not you solve their problems so it's like super super important and number one literally number one rule um so that counts the same i think in the coaching realm at work and it's just very hard to put into practice i think yeah something that i've found super useful about coaching is we've actually set up uh, like peer coaching sessions so everybody that has that kind of leadership and coaching and one-to-one role there's about four of us, I think, in, in the organization or five. Uh, we meet and we chat about it and not sharing personal things, of course, that, that are said, but more about techniques and ideas and giving each other feedback. And that's really helped me to grow. I mean, on paper, I'm supposed to be the one coaching the coaches. But, you know, there's that phrase that when one person teaches another, two people learn. I, I yeah. really think that's the case. Uh, so I can definitely recommend not just being by yourself, finding peers who you can share ideas with that's such a good nudge actually i think many many more teams including ours and and i'm like curious to hear what you what your thoughts are about this anthony are kind of forgetting about this like peer circle learning um 
opportunity that I think we all have where all we need is actually structured safe space to like bring challenges and talk about them. And of course there's limitations again, and um, not everything can be discussed in the group like this, but like, I, I bet like majority of issues can actually be addressed in these type of groups. Yeah. I've been surprised how many people are comfortable sharing and, and how much we grow together with it. I also think James, that goes back to one of the descriptions of a great leader you mentioned earlier. I think, I think we, you know, historically storytelling in groups was like, that was where we all came from, right? Like there is an element of powwow culture that really, if you miss it after you don't have it for a while. And I think to Daria's question, it, when we move really fast, sometimes we, we, and we move fast all the time. It's hard to, it's hard to it's hard to create that space because I, I firmly believe you sort of you, it, it, it requires a real talent to create a safe space at speed. Um, I think safety requires lower speed because there's just the sort of physics of it. But yeah. Um, yeah, you have to create it every now and then to to have people connect again. So it sounds like you do that really well on a regular basis with your peers. And uh, I'd be interested in sort of is it? Is, I imagine maybe sometimes it's tough to protect. Like, do you feel the do you feel the rush to not do it sometimes, or the the temptation to just continue working and to, to bypass the, the, the ritual? Not too much, um, actually. I understand why you asked the question because I can imagine the temptation seems like it would be strong, but I think it's because every time we've done it, we, we've the feedback has been so good, everyone has learned so much that it's something we really look forward to. Uh, so I, I definitely don't think that we would be wanting to cancel that for something else just because we feel like we're growing. And that's, that's a nice feeling. That's amazing. That's really good. Absolutely. I would love to um, kind of dive into a topic that we've spoken um, about previously. And for the context of our, our listeners and our audience, um, James, you work with leadership principles. And I'm obviously all curious about that because at Bunch, we are really passionate about growing leaders. And I think having leadership principles is definitely one very known technique and you've referenced this in our conversations as well that Jeff Bezos um, works with that at formerly Amazon and hopefully probably at like all the other companies that he's running. Um, I am curious to hear what your principles are and in, in particular, um, actually, how did they come to be and like how, when did you start writing them? And also, are you doing this on your own? Like what's the creative process around it? I think leadership principles is something that I kind of fell backwards into um, many years back. I think it was about five years ago now. Uh, I, I know it was because I keep a work diary every day. So I, I actually cheated before this and I looked up the first time I wrote down my, my initial set of principles and it was almost exactly five years ago. Uh, and it was when I had a, a PO role and we were doing sort of value, team values. Um, and, and I sort of had... A, a, a little stroke of inspiration that maybe, I mean, values are something that you have, I think, as a person, they're things that you value. And of course, as a group, you can figure out, well, here are the things I value, what, where do we have overlap, but it's kind of hard to force someone to value something, I think. Um, so then I sort of turned it inwards. And instead of making it about team values, I was like, okay, but what are these principles? And how can I use those to make better decisions? Um, and I kind of stole uh, the format from the Agile Manifesto because I really liked how they had an X over Y format. So one of the things I didn't like about values in some companies that I'd seen, you know, where they make a big deal out of innovation or uh, togetherness or communication, like just having single words like that didn't strike me as that valuable in terms of helping me to make decisions. Whereas X over Y kind of created more of a context 
and, and the why is normally something that I'm trying to avoid, not always, um, but it helps to spot those mistakes because you can. it's easier to spot the why than to realize when you're just not doing X. Maybe that's a bit um, abstract, but hopefully it'll become clearer when I explain them. So, so there are nine that I have right now, uh, although they've changed over time. Maybe we can talk about that, that a bit, but without further ado, here are my nine. So it's long-term over short-term, simple over easy, fast feedback over silent failure, experiment over opinion, focus over context switching, learning over stagnation, transparency over tribes, trust over micromanagement, and innovation over safe bets. And those have all come out of different reflections that I've done in different teams, different self-reflections that I've done in my work diary when I've been thinking about where have I made mistakes or where has a team not been working very well? And then what have the bright spots been? Like when has it gone better? So I think all of them have kind of been formed over time and they're not kind of fixed in place. These are not etched into, chiseled into uh, stone blocks or anything. These are a living document that as as I get new ideas, as I, I learn new things, as I figure out how to make even better decisions, these these are very malleable. But that's where I am today. That's really cool, James. And I, I can see that some, you know, particularly the last one forces you to think a bit bigger sometimes. Like there's some really, I think the X over Y framework is really cool because it, it, it highlights the reality of these things, right? It's not always easy to make the right decision and the principles kind of hold you accountable. There's one in there that I know is is, is really unique to, to, to the engineering culture and, and to engineering leaders, the, the trust over micromanagement. And you already highlighted it a, a couple minutes ago as well with sort mm-hmm. of the giving people, um, giving people the tools to solve their problems versus being tempted in with the solution as well. Um, could you, could, I want you to talk about that a little bit more. And, and do you ever struggle with, you know, um, delegating and letting go of that that kind of individual contributor mindset. And you know, are there a couple stories along the way where you really learned the hard way that that delegation is the better way to go? Or as you said it before, giving people the tools to solve the problems versus just jumping in with the, the solution. Yeah, absolutely. But to, to answer one one part of your question uh, again, so I don't forget, I, I would say I definitely struggled, especially at the start of my sort of transition over towards leadership with letting go of programming and the software development side of things. I think there are a number of reasons for that. And I'm sure I'm not alone in people that have made similar journeys. Uh, I think one part of it is you spend a long time getting good at that. Like that's a hard skill to learn. And it takes many hundreds and thousands of hours to really become good at it. Uh, And when you start becoming a leader, you're doing something that you haven't spent much time doing. So you're not good at it. And and to, Fear tends to drive a lot of our bad decisions, I think, as humans. And uh, I, I think a lot of people have that, that feeling of the, the imposter syndrome kicking in again and feeling like, oh, I need to scramble back to what I'm comfortable with. And I, I definitely felt that in the beginning, especially when you know, I told you about that team where I was the least experienced. So that was really a strong voice in my mind. And I was thinking, well, let's just try and do the things I'm good at. Um, but I think what happened is maybe more through luck than, than judgment or skill that some things just kind of went my way. Like that, that story I told you about the, the scrum rollout, the, that transition. And it, you know, you get those kind of positive feedback loops about things that aren't, um, you know, from the compiler or from your test driven development, red, green refactor lights, you know, those are really nice fast feedback loops that you get as a developer. And, and when you switch into leadership, you kind of lose that fast feedback 
But if you get lucky and you get some kind of feedback that's like, oh, well, that's nice. Or when somebody gives you a compliment about when you've, you know, shaped something with the process or when you can support someone with a one-to-one, like that kind of satisfaction is really, that, that, that hits me pretty hard and makes me feel good. Um, so even though it can be harder to track your process or your progress, uh, when you do get that feedback, it's, it's such a strong feeling. So I think slowly over time, I was able to sort of let go uh, of, of what I used to love. And I still, my secret is I still do it a little bit at home. So uh, at Snipe, I, I actually haven't written a single line of, of production code, uh, which I'm kind of proud of because <laughs> it's kind of tempting to dive in, in and do that. Um, but I think because I, you know, I, I do a little bit in my own time and because I've seen the value of um, changing to the more leader, helping other people hat and sort of trying to be, I think you could call it like a force multiplier for other people to grow and for us to deliver more effectively rather than just trying to be a strong IC myself, if that makes sense. I love the idea of a leader as a force multiplier. I think that's a really good I think that's a really good analogy that rings true for a lot of people out there. Yeah, I have so many more questions on the principles, but I also do think they almost deserve like a separate deep dive. Um, so definitely, um, I think a good kind of good follow-up conversation. So anyone who's listening, if you um, are keen on finding out more about the principles, do get in touch with James, uh, probably best over LinkedIn or where is it um, actually best to reach you, James? Yeah, I, I'm kind of hard to reach because I'm not on social media, but I am on LinkedIn. So people can definitely reach me there. Uh, and I've joined your your bunch community on Slack. So I'm also reachable there. Amazing. Exactly. Super good. Thank you, actually. So your best bet might actually be to just head over to uh, bunch.ai slash community and uh, join our Slack community and you can just simply ping James there. But I do have um, a few kind of like last follow-up questions uh, on that we um, ask most of our speakers actually to uh, get a bit, bit more, uh, even more actionable advice, even though I think many of the things that you've shared are very applicable. Um, if you kind of, try to think back maybe when uh, you took on your first management responsibility and you think about um, engineers today kind of considering doing the same move or thinking about it, what would be the advice you give someone who is an individual contributor now and is considering actually leading teams in the future? Um, yeah, what would that advice be? Mm, yeah, that's a good question. And, and of course that does crop up uh, now and then, just in my normal role, talking with people, you know, when we talk about goal setting, it's that's not unusual that that, that can be someone's someone's career goal is to move away from being IC and switch towards management or leadership. Um, so I have thought about it a little bit, but it is a hard one. Um, I, I think where I've kind of currently landed with my thinking is to try and paint a little bit of a picture for people about how different it is to have that kind of leadership role and sort of compare and contrast it to what my experiences were as a developer, of course, everybody has different experiences, but um, so, so the, the normal way that I'll do that would be to sort of point out, well, one kind of work is very deep and focused. So that's the development, whereas the other tends to be more shallow and more interrupt driven. So if you're the kind of person that really loves losing yourself in like your focus on, uh, you know, getting 
in the zone, as it were, and really being in your flow state, it's kind of hard as a leader to be in flow state for extended periods of time in my experience. So having some kind of self-reflection on how important that is to you, I think is key. Uh, and then we talked a little bit before about fast feedback versus slow feedback. And that, that to me, that's connected sort of concrete measurements of your progress versus more abstract or slow progress that you tend to get a, a, as a leader. You know, like we said, the red green refactor or, you know, the build system saying, yeah, all the tests are passing with the latest code that you checked in. That that's that's a more secure way of feeling like you're making progress. So, depending on your personality type, you might you might be drawn to that, or you might be okay with you know it being fluffier and taking longer. So that's something to talk about. Um, and then it's about what do you think about other people, uh, and and what do you think about because as an individual contributor, your main focus is about developing yourself. It's about growing your skills, and of course, sharing knowledge and bringing up junior developers and. But how much of that uh, appeals to you? How much satisfaction do you get by helping other people to develop and to grow? Because that's such a big part of the role. Uh, and then just technology versus people as a general concept. Of course, as an engineering leader, there's still a huge chunk of technology in it. So it's not like you just completely cut that out of your life. But suddenly the people become the thing that you should focus on. Um, and I think software is its a lot about people. It's more about people than I think most most engineers might realize uh, both the, the tools and the, the products that we're building, you know, that's, that should be people driven. And then as a leader, understanding that we are a team of people and that's what's going to make us effective or not. Such a good takeaway. I think this, I, I've been actually kind of writing a few uh, bits and pieces while you were speaking and uh, we'll, we'll tweet them out later, but so many, uh, wisdom nuggets, I think, in the things you shared. So thank you so much. It's been um, really, really valuable. Last but not least, though, actually, and this is maybe a related question, but maybe slightly different. Um, if you would be able to kind of turn back time and you would give your younger self advice, uh, what would it be looking back? If I'm thinking back to the that 19-year-old uh, and, and kind of how I thought about the world back then and and maybe what I thought my life might turn out to be like or what I was afraid of. Um, one thing that comes to mind is that there's an insight that I, I gained quite late in life that would have been kind of neat if, if someone would have told me this and sort of explained it to me when I was a lot younger. Uh, and, and the insight is this, is that the map is not the territory. Uh, that It was this um, philosopher slash scientist called Alfred. I, I, I'm going to butcher his surname, but I think it's Kozybski. Who, who coined that phrase, the map is not the territory. And I think when I was younger, I, I thought that my understanding of reality and reality were basically the same thing. Uh, I didn't realize that how the brain worked. You know, I hadn't looked into psychology or neurology. Uh, and I didn't realize that these mental models that we build up over our lives uh, can be wrong and they can be totally wrong uh, and that there are better and worse ways to, to build those models. And I think what I've subsequently discovered is if you can try and make your mental models as accurate as possible to match sort of the underlying territory of reality, uh, then you can be much more effective at navigating through it. So I think if I'd have learned that earlier, I think I would have been further ahead on my learning journey than, than I am now. And one more thing, I would also tell myself, uh, prefer to, to listen to, to experts who make falsifiable predictions uh, rather than people that just tell good stories. Uh, 
I mean, good stories are nice. You, you mentioned earlier, Anthony, about how important storytelling is. That's that's true. But if you're trying to understand something, I think it's really important with falsifiability. Yeah, super good, uh, super good last kind of advice and uh, last minute comments. Really glad uh, we got to, to touch upon that point. I think um, it's a philosophically interesting question. I would definitely, I think, agree but I also have so many questions around you know subjective reality and um there's also definitely I think a few a few questions and thoughts that I would would love to dig deeper on but we, we um, can have a one-to-one philosophy discussion that would be fun <laughs> yeah. it does definitely sound like it does need a follow-up conversation but everyone who's listening who really wants to nerd out with James on all things engineering management uh, but also philosophy of life and uh, advice for younger selves I think it's definitely more than worth it to ping James. Um, so please feel free to, to reach out. And um, yeah, if you if anyone is interested in the blueprint of uh, the principles, we'll include um, uh, your LinkedIn um, profile as well in the description of the podcast. So anyone who wants to reach out has uh, the possibility to do so. And it's been a huge pleasure. I learned a lot. I don't know how about you, Anthony? It's been real, James. Super, 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 super deep, but also super, super broad. It's been an absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed uh, uh, learning from you. It's been a pleasure being here and chatting with you. Thank you for asking such insightful questions. Thank you so much for your time. And also, obviously, all the best for this new phase, for the new uh, jump into a new adventure. Super Cool to kind of uh, see what this na- this new adventure brings to you as well, and and watch your journey a bit more. And thank you so much for sharing and being so authentic and being open and being transparent with us. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Teams at Work. Let me know what your thoughts are on today's episode. You can find me on Instagram at Daria Gudnik and start a conversation there. At the beginning of the show, I mentioned that my team and I are building an AI leadership coach to help you become a world-class leader in just two minutes a day. It's coming out very soon on the Apple App Store. If you want to get early access, though, head over to bunch.ai and simply sign up. And thanks again for listening. I'm your host. My name is Daria Gutnick. I'm the co-founder and CEO at Bunch. If you liked today's episode, make sure to subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts.